welcome to a, an extra special, hi Liz, an extra special event, which is not the usual fantastic fiction at KGB, which is just Wednesday, so don't miss it, come back, for Nora Jemison and um, Chris Brown. But anyway, tonight is an Alice event um, in honor of uh, the new anthology, Mad Hatters and March Hares, just out from tour last week. And here's a beautiful poster. My editors and my in-house editors in the audience, please stand up or wave your hand, Liz. Thank you, Liz. I don't have to stand up. Just wave your hand. Thank you for coming. <laughs> and uh, we have six of the contributors here. We have books for sale from Word. And if you're lucky, if you're fast, you can buy them and get us all to sign them for you. Or buy and also buy Christmas gifts for people. We have hardcover. I don't. Have, do they have a hardcover and paper back there? All right, you have hardcover. There are paperback, but you'll have to go elsewhere for them. But maybe you want to buy the hardcovers for gifts. So anyway, um, I have always loved... I'm not going to read my intro. I read it in Bisty, Connecticut, but it's boring. Um, it's just that I love Alice in Wonderland. I've always loved Alice. I don't know when I first read it. Um, but basically, I love the illustrations. And not even the Tenniel illustrations, but anybody who has done beautiful illustrations of it. And there are... So many artists who have done it. Uh, Salvador Dali did a book and that was reissued recently for not uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, Barry Moser has done an incredible version with Jane Yolen as, I think she's a duchess. Yeah. I can't, she's a duchess. Um, I don't know if you know Barry Moser's work. He's from uh, Massachusetts and he and Jane know each other and I guess that's why he used her as a model. She says she hates the, the the, the uh, picture of the illustration, but it's perfect. I mean, it's just wonderful. And she's, it's got her knitting and a pig. It may have a pig holding the pig. I'm not sure. And the pig will be coming um, out in, uh, in Genevieve's story. The pig will be mentioned. And the Duchess a little bit. She's going to be reading later. Um, so anyway, Ralph Stedman's done uh, an edition. Uh, Arthur Rackham has done it. Uh, Liz, I, can't, I never remember, Zwerger, Zwerger. I forget her last name. But she's done a lot of children's books, and she's done a gorgeous um, Alice. And there are just tons of, of, of artists who have illustrated Alice. And that's more why I'm obsessed with her rather than the actual Alice herself. Um, but anyway, the way this came about is I was at a convention being interviewed and, and talking about anthologies. And I had done the Lovecraft-inspired anthology and a Poe-inspired anthology. And someone in the audience said, well, what would you like to do? What is something you'd like to do? Who would you like to do an anthology inspire? You know, what else would you want to do about you know, using someone's theme or idea? And I said, well, I don't, gee, I have no idea, but I love Alice in Wonderland. And I said, you know, well, why don't you do an Alice-inspired anthology? I said, oh, maybe. OK, that's an interesting idea. And afterwards in the bar, all these people, mostly women, came up to me and said, oh, I want to write for that, I want to write for that. And it turns out most of the stories in here are by women. About um, There are four or five by men, um, and the rest are by women, which is just total happenstance. But there's something about uh, Through the Looking Glass and those critters and Alice and her whole, the, whole, the whole story that obviously girls and women probably, there's something about that that they're attracted to. So anyway, so we have the book now, and we have our first reader <coughs> is going to be Chris Dykeman, who lives in New York City. Her work has appeared in Lady Churchill's Rosebed Ris Rosebud Wristlet, Year's Best Fantasy Nine, Strange Horizons, Sybil's Garage, The Best of All Flesh, and Sympathy for the Devil, among other places. 
Read more of her work online at chrisdykeman.me. Um, she's got a poem. You can clap or type. She's going to come and do her poem. So please welcome Chris. privilege of reading with Jane Yolen in Mystic. Um, her poem is the last poem in the book and mine is the first. Uh, Don't look at me, I'm going to chew that. Yes, because you're going to burn my, thank you very much. You're going to burn my retinas okay, out. Okay. So it's a concrete poem. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, it's a concrete poem which uh, in, in Alice in Wonderland there's a poem called The Mouse's Tale which is in the shape of a mouse's tail. This is a poem about uh, a tea party, and it's in the shape of a teacup. And if you've ever tried to, if you think it's easy to write a poem in the shape of a teacup, it's because you've never tried it. So, uh, and I, I'll just read from this, that's fine. Uh, this is called Gentle Alice. She sits among the dirty plates and shards of shattered mirror piled in splintered mounds, searching for a single cup still sound and whole amid the chaos of a table spread before her like a field at battle's end, strewn with bent spoons, ruined pawns, crushed petals, white and red. I watch from my perch above the table, invisible beneath the moon. At last she finds one gilt-edged survivor. She pours in tea, cold and thick with dormouse fur, her reflection in the dented pot is a stranger to herself, the Red Queen's bloody crown heavy on her head. She swirls twice, she swirls once, twice, thrice, flicks her wrist, leans forward to read black dregs against bone china. What future is written there? She's weary now of games and trials, knaves, rabbits, riddles with no answers, food that grows and shrinks her at its fancy. But where to go? Home to dreaming spires? Can fairy tales told along the river's edge still keep her heart content? Can any earthly prince amaze a girl who faced a pasteboard queen? She could stay, grow tall, rule this dark, strange world, call for clamor, lopped heads and painted roses. But gentle Alice longs for bedtime. If she can, she'll nod and sleep and wake to home. Clean sheets, butter biscuits, hot milk in a clean cup, and kitten Dinah's <coughs> soft, sweet purr instead of magic cats that smiling disappear. six readers tonight, so what we'll probably do is have three and three or something like that, and we'll take a break and in between um, buy a drink, have buy a book, or just relax and talk to us. Okay. Lisa, I told you you were next, yes? Okay. I just want to make sure. I know, I have to find your bio. Isabel S. Wills is a graduate of Clarion West and has been nominated for the World Fantasy Award the James Tiptree Jr. Award, and won the Andre Norton Award for the second volume of her, in her Flora, Fridraca? Right. Ah, series Flora's Dare. Her short fiction has appeared in Asimov Science Fiction, 
the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and several years best anthologies. A most recent book, a collection of short stories entitled Prophecies, Libels, and Dreams, was published in 2014. She may be found online intermittently at, at Crackpot Hall. Please welcome Isabel, and make sure you speak into the mic better than I did. very hard time with this story because it's very hard to, um, am I talking into the mic? You're, you're good. Thank you. It's uh, very hard uh, riffing on Lewis Carroll <laughs> because he is the king of nonsense and trying to out-nonsense Lewis Carroll is a fool's game, but I gave it my best, so this is what I have. It's called The Queen of Hats. Chapter one, Into the Trunk. The poor tamale girl, her tamale pail empty, but no coins tucked safely in her sash. Just before the northern crossroads, she'd been set upon by steely boys. They'd slid down the sand dunes, screaming like sirens, knocked her over, stomped her hat, and rolled her until the coins fell from her sash into their graspy paws. Then they disappeared into the dune grass, their victory shriek swallowed up by the gusting fog. So now she sprawls in the sand, grit in her teeth, grit stuck to her wet cheeks, grit grating her bare knees, ribs burning, thinking of home. Oh, what shall I do? If I go home with sash and pail empty, Pappy will spit on me and whip me with my own sash. My sibs will hiss like snakes and give me the old stink eye. And Mama will make me sleep in the woodpile. I shall get splinters. The little tamale girl wiggles her tongue against her teeth, feels no wobbles, and spits a mouthful of sandy blood. A cold wind is blowing in off the water and the ground is wet and hard. Fog and dank and darkness and maybe the steely boys are not the only ones out tonight hoping for a victim. Grimacing the little tamale girl sits up thinking to herself, oh, I should just go home and take my whipping for surely that is better than lying in the sand all night and being preyed upon by coyotes or fleas. Oh, fike those steely boys and, oh no, do I hear a voice? Someone is coming. Perhaps it is the Steely Boys returning, or perhaps it's Springfield Jack, or even the man in pink bloomers come to drag me to hell. Scrambling to her feet, the little tamale girl snatches up her pail and hightails it into the scrub. She should crawl deep into hiding, but if she's unseen, she'll also be unseen, and curiosity has gotten the little tamale girl in its claws. She flattens herself into a pancake and peers through the ice plant to see a dark shape trundling down the road, muttering to itself. Oh, why did she have to pick this wasteland so far out of town and with all this blowing sand? And where am I going to find actors out here? There are crossroads in the city good enough, but this was the only crossroad to suit her, blast her. Well, thinks the little tamale girl, I have never seen such a large rabbit before, and why is he carrying such a heavy trunk? Surely he knows there are no hotels out here, nor boarding houses or stage stops along this road neither. And why is he putting the trunk down in the middle of the crossroads? Doesn't he know that when the Presidio horse car comes in the morning, the trunk shall be smashed to bits or run over by the milk cows being driven to the dairy? Should I warn him? See something, say something, my mama always says, but also mind your own business. What shall I do? Having deposited the trunk into the middle of the intersection of the Presidio plank road in the northern cut, the rabbit fishes a large pocket watch from its waistcoat and after consulting, unlocks the trunk. Its sides hinge open like a butterfly's wings, but away from the little tamale girl's view. 
She can only see the back of the trunk, which is speckled with transfer stickers. Ticonderoga, Arkham, Cibola, Porkopolis, Belagost, Goblin Town, Eboracum, Sunnydale, London. Queerer and queerer, thinks the little tamale girl as she creeps forward for a closer look. Porkopolis and Ticonderoga I have heard of, but London? That sounds like a made-up place to me. I do think I should warn him. Clearly he is a visitor to the city and does not realize how busy this crossroads can be during the day. Sometimes it gets two or three carts in an hour. Hey, sir, sir! The rabbit doesn't answer, and when the little tamale girl peeks around the side of the trunk, he's not there. But the inside of the trunk is a wonderland. One side is like a little closet stuffed with hangers of glorious costumes gleaming with gold agulets, silver sotash, and glittering galoon. The opposite side, all drawers, each filled with marbles. The first contains macalage, pots of rouge, fat black eye pencils, trays of fluttering eyelashes, palettes of shimmering eye colors, sanjin, grease, ebon, celadon, octarine. And the next drawer contains neat rows of gloves, satin, velvet, dogskin, and crocodile leather. After that, it's hair pieces, curly and straight and braided, puffed and fringed. And then whiskers, some long and flowing, some small and militaristic, and some like bristle brushes, others soft and fuzzy. The little tamale girl reaches for the wig box on the bottom, so wrapped in the spangles and sparkles she doesn't notice the skeletal hand slowly emerging from the tangle of garments behind her. It grabs the back of her pinafore and yanks. Oh dear, thinks the little tamale girl as she plummets downward. I seem to have fallen into the trunk, and nothing good can come to girls who fall into trunks. But then I never heard of a girl who fell into a trunk. Perhaps I am the first and she'll buck the trend. Really, it can't be much different than falling into a hole, although I suppose a trunk is less likely to have a lion in the bottom of it or six feet of water or be a portal to hell. I wish, ooh, marmalade. The little tamale girl grabs the jar of marmalade off the shelf as she plummets by it, and after winching the top off, shovels the sweet stuff into her mouth as quickly as she can. She's famished and the fall might end before she has time to finish, but she's still falling when the jar is empty, so she tosses it away, heedless of who it might land upon. Down, 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 the little tamale girl goes. The drawers and shelves are done, and now it's ropes and pulleys and a canvas backdrop painted like a hallway full of closed doors, and another backdrop showing a two-dimensional courtroom, and one painted like the seaside with frozen waves and glittery sand. Still down, down, she falls, past huge arc lights, lights, lenses covered with colored paper, swaths of red velvet curtain, and a clutter of props, a plaster mushroom, pots of roses, paper mache oyster shells, and an enormous soup tureen. She thinks, this fall is going on for quite some time. Perhaps I can twist like a cat and land on my feet. I certainly have time to try. And so she tries to twist and turn herself, but all she does is upend her pinafore and blow air up her nose and tangle her hair and lose her hat. Well, that didn't work, so perhaps I shall have to make my own cushion. She's passing more racks of costumes now, so she snatches at the hangers as she plummets by, and soon her arms are heaped with kirtles and basques and Garibaldi shirts and pelerines and mantaus and polonaises and sackcloth and sables. Now I am ready for this fall to be over, the little tamale girl says to herself. It was charming at first, but now it's just tedious. I wonder how far I shall fall out of the bottom of this trunk and through the sand and the rocks beneath and right into the arms of the giant squid sitting in the center of the earth. And that, I suppose, will be that but at least there will be no more woodpile. Two, the wardrobe. 
And then the fall is over, and the little tamale girl has landed not on the costumes, but under them. So she is smothered in ribbons, bows, velvet, fustian, taffety, lace, calico, brocade, grass grain, cypress, and all other manner of textiles. There is considerable weight to struggle out from under, and doing so takes her some time. Well, it's better than drowning in six feet of water or being eaten by a lion, the little tamale girl says when she emerges. Despite the thud, she's not suffered at all in the landing. In fact, the aches left over from the steely boy's thumping have disappeared, and she feels wonderful. She's standing in a long hallway lined with doors, each inset with a small gold plaque that says, Wardrobe, Dressing Room, Wig Room, Prop Room, Wings, Proscenium, Orchestra Pit, Office, Stage Door, Snack Bar, and Canteen. But the doors are tiny, only as tall as the tamale girl's knobby, scabby knees. Perhaps if I hold my breath long enough, I shall shrink down, the little tamale girl thinks. But before she can do so, a furious voice assails her. You, what are you doing? What a mess you've made. Pick up those costumes extemporaneously. A rotund figure wobbles towards the little tamale girl, waving a long pair of scissors in one glove and flapping a measuring tape in the other. Immediately, independently, absolutely, intravenously, right now. The little tamale girl laughs. Why, you are nothing more than a dress dummy. Dummy? I am a wardrobe mistress of this troop, capiche? Comprende? Don't you know? The wardrobe mistress says indignantly. Her eyes are made of buttons and her mouth picked out in straight pins, and her lack of hair is hidden by the blousy lace cap that looks like a cabbage. I cry your pardon, madam, the tamale girl says, dipping into a curtsy, but I wonder how you can talk through a mouthful of pins. Better pins that are useful than those nasty bits of bones you call teeth, said the wardrobe mistress. Now look what you have done to this gorgeous frock and she has picked up the garment in question out of the heap at the tamale girl's feet. It's the leading lady's favorite dress, designed by Schiaparelli. She wore it in the role of Rosalind, for which she wore one a BAFTA. You've got some of the duck feathers off. Quick, take it to the wardrobe and get those feathers back on before she notices and has your head chopped, chapped, chipped. The little tamale girl is so alarmed by the thought that her teeth are nothing but bone, which had never occurred to her before that she sweeps the dress away from the wardrobe mistress and rushes down the hallway. Either she has shrunk or the door has grown, for when the door opens, she fits through exactly, and inside the room is packed full of garment racks, thick as corn in a field. The wardrobe mistress thrusts a needle and a duck into the little tamale girl's hands. Ignoring the panic quacking, the little tamale girl begins to sew frantically, but soon her fingers are sore, the dress duck won't stop flapping, and the dress is beginning to complain about the little tamale girl's rough stitches. The wardrobe mistress has disappeared. She throws the needle down. The duck snatches it up in its beak. It and the dress hurry away before the tamale girl can stop them, and the little tamale girl says to herself, by the pricking of my thumbs, I don't see why I should sit here and sew feathers forever. Let the feathers sew themselves. After all that work, I'm thirsty. I saw a door marked canteen in the hallway. Canteens hold water, so surely I can get a drink there. That's where I'm going to stop. <laughs> hard to organize six people. <laughs> I think, what's your name again? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Thank God these are the bios at least are in alphabetical order. <laughs> uh, Catherine Vaz is a former... Oh, hmm? oh okay. You weren't going to be next. Right. I don't know, maybe someone else is no, too okay. bad. All right. All right. <laughs> 
Kevin Vaz is a former Briggs Copeland Fellow in Fiction at Harvard University and Fellow of the Radcliffe Institute, and is a prize-winning author of two story collections, Fado and Other Stories, and Our Lady of the Artichokes, and two novels, Sodad and Mariana. Her work is often in the school of magic realism. Her children's YA stories have been published in various anthologies, including as a title story in Swan Sister. Her latest book is The Love Life of an Assistant Animator. For years, she has been a frequent contributor to anthologies edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. Please welcome Catherine Vaz. You have your story? Okay. I thought I was going to go fourth. So. Well, you told hey. me third. Well, so you we, lost me. we lost count. We lost count. Um, I told Ellen once that I, and it's good to be here with some familiar faces and new people too, and to be part of this wonderful anthology. I also adore um, Else in Wonderland, and I guess I never really quite understood until Ellen was talking that it was the illustrations that also really affected me. Um, my first attempt to write a story for Ellen was um, I thought I'd have a character with a, who was a hat maker and had a terrible eating disorder, and it was terrible, absolutely awful. So, so that never saw the light of day. Um, but Ellen did tell me once I told, well, actually, I told Ellen that I didn't know how to write a horror story, and I wasn't had to go about, and she said, "What do you?" Wait? She said it in that Ellen voice. What are you? What are you talking about? You just wrote one. Um, so this is my horror story. Um, Although you might, the horror might not come through at first. I don't know. The, the, the horror. I won't read the horror part. <laughs> I, won't, I won't read the horror. You have to buy the book. You have to buy the book. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Chris was is an editor type, so that's that's his cue. Okay. I thought I would just read um, the first two pages of the story. And then I'll just skip around to um, two other very short patches. So it's about, ends up being about two and a half pages altogether. Um, my story's called Moon and Memory and Muchness, which was from the, the tea party. I begin at three o'clock in the morning. There's a glaze over tonight's rind of the moon. Sometimes, this being a club-dense part of the East Village, I jump out of my skin at the sound of breaking glass, a quarrel. I almost cry out for Alicia. I assemble the adorable tiny pots of lemon curd and mango jam and the comfits that my customers steal. I use a butter cutter pastry tool on the best butter for the pumpkin scones. A New York Times food editor asked for my secret ingredient in the ginger muffins, but I demurred, not because it's exotic, but because it's frightfully simple. I add coconut extract. My walk-in freezer is packed to its gills, but everything is precisely labeled. Grief can do this. There's a ferocious desire to control and align the world, as if that stops or reverses the time. Mini quiches, miniature tortilla molds for lentil salad. I fix roulade sandwiches with Russian dressing, turkey, Cotswold cheddar. Does a person ever conquer an eating disorder? Everything screams, eat me, drink me. As a young wife and mother, I blew up two sizes, melted down three, over and over. Now I survive on practically nothing. Toast and rose hip infusions. My Wonderland tea shop and its kitchen are downstairs, and I perch in small quarters above. After one day's prep, service, and cleanup, it's always time to start over again. What is the bargaining stage of grief? Since I've never figured this out, 
I fear I'm trapped in whatever it is. If I hold my temper when a customer spills clotted cream on the floor, will Alicia reappear? If I smile as a woman changes her order from white tea to Zen mix, will my child's ghost appear? If I throw out the news clippings about the two young madmen who tormented and murdered Alicia, will I get unstuck in time? Is that even something I want? My ex-husband Bill lives with a new wife and son, already a schoolboy, in Phoenix, and we chat on occasion. We have lunch. I watch him eat while I can't finish my soup when he returns for the parole hearings. I'm glad for him. He blamed me for Alicia, but I blame myself. At an arts and crafts emporium in Chelsea, while gathering holly and garlands for Christmas, I turned my back and the earth swallowed her. Above the shop, my rented rooms are so minute as if I live in the cutaway of a whelk shell. Painted on the face of the ticking tabletop clock is a girl on a swing, her Mary Jane's frozen toward heaven. Occasionally, I resort to pills for sleep and glide in technicolor dreams, flowers talking, flamingos playing a game with me as the baseball. I maintain intact the pint-sized tea table that Alicia loved arranging for her stuffed rabbit and Mabel the mouse and Jackie the toucan. At each setting are plastic wands filled with water, glitter, and tiny keys. My husband Bill joined the little parties we threw for her animals, mint and sugar water and vanilla wafers. He was a warm father and husband. I used to teach poetry at a small college on Staten Island, but those eager faces, even the ones ravaged by wild partying, blazed their hopeful innocence in my direction, nearly burning me alive. Bill was an accountant. We lived modestly, us three, in Murray Hill. We sold our apartment and shared the profits after the two boys, rich, with a lawyer passionately loud about the burden of their privileges, were sentenced to only 12 years. Alicia died at age six, eight years ago. It was yesterday. I never remembered that Alicia would be 14 now. I live for the girls who come in with their mothers, a special treat. They're joyful in this make-believe realm I've made. Throwback to gracious times, tea, gentility, bite-sized sandwiches, the pots warm British style, loose leaves if you have more time, an extra spoon for the pot. I'm not raking in a fortune, but I've kept my nose above water. My child once found a songbird, egg yolk yellow with a head wound, during a walk with us in Central Park. She fed it with an eyedropper at home. Bill and I warned her it wouldn't make it. She insisted that it would, or at least it wouldn't die alone. She was all of five, one year left to live. She named the birdie Dodo, I'll never know why. Came the dawn that the bird flapped around her room and Alicia opened the window and chanted, go now, go away, fly, go on, though she was in tears. One night as a prank, Alicia put crayons in Bill's in my bed. Her reason was that we seemed so drained, she was afraid we were dreaming in black and white. Okay. We're going to take a break now. Uh, so buy some books and have us all sign them. And we'll be back you know, in about 10 minutes. Have a drink at the bar. We do this, they, they let us have the bar for nothing. And uh, come back, you know, we'll be back in five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever.
Hi there, we're back. Yes, this is actually Isabeau's flamingo. She was supposed to wear it and she forgot. So she's forced me to wear it. Yeah, it's fun. I begged to wear it. It's true, I begged. I said I want to wear it. That's right. Okay. Hang on. Our next reader is going to be Richard Bose, who has published 10 books and 80 short stories. He's won World Fantasy, Lambda, Million Writer, and IHG Awards. <coughs> A new edition of his Nebula-nominated novel from the Files of the Time Rangers came out in March 2017 from Leopard Press. <coughs> Excuse me. His 9-11 story, There's a Hole in the City, recently got a fine review in The New Yorker and is online at Nightmare Magazine. Recent and forthcoming appearances include Fantasy and Science Fiction and The Darker Realms and Black Feathers Anthologies. Bose is currently writing a novel about a gay kid with a bit of magic about him in 1950s Boston. Please welcome Richard Bose. I don't think it would suit me as well as it does you. <laughs> now, let me see. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, if the hat's in the way, tell me not to do it. That's right. Everyone talks about their introduction to Alice in Wonderland. I was introduced to it by my parents who were actors and who put everything they had into reading the story for me. They loved it, and I liked it too. What? There's something going on over there. Some kind of wonderland. On a Sunday afternoon... Okay, on a Sunday afternoon, Gilda Dan Darnell and I are in her living room, phoning in one last conference call. I tell the host, we too have been buddies since we were both in Scott Holman's Alice film, Some Kind of Wonderland, back in 1965. She was the Duchess, I was the Cheshire Cat. With the show's 50th anniversary, or resurrection, scheduled for Monday evening, we've chased down every promotional opportunity we could find. Gilda says, Some Kind of Wonderland came out early in 1966. The Village Voice had us on the front page. Hippie Alice hits the Big Apple, is how they put it. We got lots of downtown Manhattan attention, but so many underground films got released around then, and Scott Holman, our producer, had passed away. But I never forgot about it. A few years ago, I managed to buy the rights from the Holman family and got the film annex interested in restoring it. She nods to me, and I say, Scott Holman had this off-kilter perspective, like the Alice books themselves. He caught New York at a certain moment, and he, and he created the cast out of people he found. His Alice was a young model he saw in a fashion shoot. Childa said, I've been in a couple of off-Broadway shows, but I came to his attention because I was the mouthiest waitress in all of West Village. And what were you, Justin, the host asked me. A street boy who got very lucky, I hear myself say, as the interview ends. Gilda gets a call from a publicist she hired. This one actually works on Sunday. The approach is, it was worth the wait, she says. Things I learned working on Wonderland led me to a nice gig in, as a location scout and a fixer for movies and TV shows, shooting in New York. 
but Jilda has managed to learn the way of Manhattan real estate and politics. She's my hero. While she talks strategy, I look down at the world from her 20th story windows in Tribeca. I love the way she doesn't forget the actual past. Prominent in her living room are framed black and white photos from 50 years back and more. They show a stark, corroded highway, a junk-riddled Hudson River Bank, and the wrecked warehouses where this building and other high-rises now stand. Bringing those ruins to Scott's attention was my proudest contribution to the film. The editor of an online entertainment site calls Gilda. At the same moment, Lucinda Gold comes out of her room and floats through the apartment in dark glasses and a lovely green kimono. Gilda is Lucinda's partner and caregiver. Lucinda was Alice in the film. She's gone a few rounds with addiction and had a stroke a decade or two back. The glasses hide a dead eye, and she speaks a bit haltingly. We go out onto the balcony and watch the sunset. I sit on her good side and catch a hint of the lovely kid for whom I was once a body double. She's kind of excited by the revival and tells me, I hope you invited all the freaks and monsters. He may have loved me, but he wanted to be you, I say, and we laugh. With an early spring night falling on the city, I kiss her and wave goodbye to Gilda. At ground level, the gathering darkness and the absence of pedestrians could give you a minor chill, but this is Trebekka, now the safest of Manhattan neighborhoods, not the bombed out wreckage where we film so much of some kind of wonderland. On a cobblestone side street leading away from the river, I pass the 18th century two-story townhouse we once used as the White Rabbit's home. Fifty years back, was on a different street with faded tra tradesman signs over the door and shingles falling off. Now it's been moved and refurbished. A light is on on the second floor window and a figure stands talking on a cell phone. He turns slightly and reveals rabbit ears. Someone walking her dog stops and stares. A male couple snaps cell phone shots. The light goes out and I wonder if this is something Gilda's created as publicity for the revival. I also remember Scott telling me, it's a kind of leakage. A story spreads out into the world around it. Even someone who's never read the Alice books remembers a song or one saw a drawing. As I walk uptown through Soho and into the village, I remember thumbing my way to Manhattan from South Jersey when I was 17. People back home said I talked and walked funny. Everyone knew my mother drank and did drugs and that my father was nowhere to be found. On my way to the city, I dumped that prior life. When the last lonely driver let me out of his car on Bleecker Street, I took one look around and knew this was my place. One night, I was filling in for the busboy at the village gate and caught the eye of a young man in glasses sitting with some other guys. When I paid an unnecessary visit to their table, he said, you've got a smile like the Cheshire cat. Because I'd gotten a really lousy education, I had no idea what he was talking about. The night after that, he came alone and met me at closing time. We went out drinking. Scott was his name. He took me to his apartment on the first floor of an old brownstone on a quiet street. My trip from Gilda and Lucinda's house leads me down that street and into the apartment where I've lived ever since. Yes, I'm lucky, and yes, it's haunted. There's a mirror over the unu unusable fireplace. When I flick on the light, it catches my favorite Scott photo on the opposite wall. He sits twirling his horn and glasses, smiling at me. That Monday evening in the film annex, we turned out a crowd. The theater seats about 200, and there are standees. The curator tells the audience how editors managed to reconstruct our nearly lost Manhattan Alice film. 
he describes the mid-60s explosion of New York underground cinema, cites Angus, Angus Scorpio Rising, chafed elbowed by Robert Downey Jr.'s father, and the rise of the Warhol publicity machine. It seems some kind of wonderland got lost in the melee, she says. Then it's my turn to stand before the screen in my best suit and talk about Scott Holman. The world has changed for certain when an aged former rent boy is called on to explain a director's work. The first thing I say is, when we first met, Scott called me the Cheshire Cat. All I knew was that he was magic. He was shocked that I'd never heard of Alice. He read the first part of Alice in Wonderland aloud to me. I read the rest, first book I ever finished. Within a few weeks, I found myself immersed in that story. Not my first lover or my last, I say, but the only one who woke me in the middle of the night to wonder how gay the fraud footman was. He gave everything he had to one dream, and you'll see it wasn't in vain. There is some applause as the lights go down, and I step aside. Just before the opening credits, the curators have, insisted, have inserted a tiny clip from the film. The Cheshire Cat, me in mask and costume, all lunatic smiles, pounces on an invisible mouse. Scott Holman interspersed the opening credits between shots of Alice waking from a nap on a wicker couch in the living room of our apartment. He told me early on what caught him about Lucinda. On screen, Alice arose and parted the curtains. The first thing that caught her eye was a human-sized rabbit, played by an elegant kid in a waiter's outfit with a white rabbit tail on the seat of his pants. He murmured to himself about being late. Yes, thank you. Nice to mingle. <laughs> Our next reader is Matthew Kressel. He's the author of the novels King of Shards and Queen of Static. He's been twice nominated for a Nebula Award and once for a World Fantasy Award. His short fiction has appeared in such venues as Lightspeed, Nightmare, Nightmare Tour.com, Clark's World, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, IO9, Interzone, Apex Magazine, as well as the anthologies Cyberworld, After, Naked City, The People of the Book, and many others. He co-hosts the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series in Manhattan alongside Ellen Datlow, and he has been a longtime member of the Altered Fluid Writing Group. Find him online at matthewkressel.net or at Matt Kressel. Please welcome Matt. Um, so I think I was inspired by this story from uh, a visit. I don't want to hold this. Uh, a visit at, that I took to the Morgan Museum, and there was an, what was it, about two years ago? There was an Alice exhibit? Morgan Library. Morgan Library, thank you. And um, I was just kind of struck by how, uh, what a pheno phenomenon that Alice had become, uh, just from literally just a story that um, a man told to a girl uh, as they went down the River Isis. And uh, also, um, it struck me as just um, kind of creepy, all the photos he took of her. So. Uh, those two things together uh, in inspired this piece. This is called uh, In Memory of a Summer's Day. I'm just going to read, like, the first three sections.
He's 12, yes? I say to the smiling couple from Kyoto as their child looks up at me fearfully. Yes, his mother insists, flashing me a toothy grin. Just last week. I'd bet 50 quid in my last Chesterfield. The kid's not even nine. But I just smile and pull the rope aside to let the boy and his parents leap down the rabbit hole together. Their screams and laughter fade as they fall while the queue presses ever closer to me. The languid river beside us glitters prismatically in the afternoon light, sending a flurry of rainbows across their anxious and eager faces. Among them, I spot half a dozen kids of questionable age. But I've got orders to let everyone in now. Old, young, disabled, senile, deranged. Everyone but infants, and sometimes even them. They come from all over. Japan, Brazil, Norway, China, Nigeria, Russia, Singapore, Yemen, South Korea, the States, of course, the UK, plus lots of elsewheres and elsewhens. Wonderland has become the thing to see before you die, like the Matterhorn and the Grand Canyon and the Great Wall of China. They come in dusty coaches, packed near bursting. They pull right up to the River Isis and befoul the once sweet air with carbonized exhaust. The coaches vomit out dozens of people onto the riverbank. Once so quiet, you could hear the delicate sound of leaves brushing the ground in autumn. Now there's a franchise cafe selling sandwiches and espresso. Fifty sets of metallic tables rusting under towering elms. And two dozen bright kiosks offering everything from Cheshire chocolates to CDs with studio-recorded tracks of Beautiful Soup and the Lobster Quadrille. The garbage cans always overflow. After debussing, a few kids inevitably cry. Adults and children rush to the lavatories. Pinafores are purchased and donned. Mediocre coffee is bought for exorbitant prices. Parents wrinkle their noses as they, exa as they examine free maps, which are less maps than warnings, while spouses look on uneasily. Are you sure you want to do this? You heard the stories. Don't worry, don't worry. Tickets are 186 pound, 40 pence per person, adults and children alike, sold only on location, on the day of arrival, discounts unavailable, admission never guaranteed. And all must sign a waiver absolving Wonderland of any harm, physical, mental, or otherwise, that might befall them while there. The wise read the waiver first, but everyone always signs. None can resist the lure for long because even though they think they know what awaits them down the rabbit hole, it's never quite what they've imagined. And after, no one's ever quite the same. I go down there 12 times a day. I've been leading tours of Wonderland for 40 years, though it feels like twice that. And though my bones ache and my knees throb, my retirement's a distant ship on the horizon that might just be a floater in my vision. A lucrative job this isn't, and I've got spousal maintenance payments, a crushing amount of debt, and various court orders to consider. Plus, the boss has, let's just say, more pressing things keeping me here. In other words, I'm trapped. I predict one day I'll just keel over in the middle of the croquet ground or collapse into the Duchess's manger. I wonder if they'll take my body back to earth or bury me in Wonderland or just flush me down the pool of tears. Some days I'm convinced the entire realm will suddenly go up in flames with everyone inside, myself included, like some virtual particle evanescing. 
The thought is not entirely unwelcome. I'm on tour 9 of 12. We're in the Hall of Doors, and I'm so bloody knackered I could fall asleep standing up. But the show must go on. I yawn and cross my arms and lean against one of the hundreds of locked and mismatched doors, checking the time on my mobile, no signal, as my group of 39 grows and shrinks and laughs and shrieks as they sample the food and drink on the table. Back in the old days, we used to take hundreds at a time, but now we cap it at 40 persons, so we can more or less keep an eye on everyone. This ever since that poor boy guzzled all of the drink-me fluid, even though we have signs in 12 languages warning people to take but a sip. He howled as he shrunk and vanished, and though we scoured the hall for days, his body was never found. To this day, I still sometimes hear a faint squeal when I enter the hall of doors, and while I suspect it's Mouse having a laugh, I always look twice before I step there. It tastes like rose water, one says. Gingerbread, says another. In runs the white rabbit, saying, Oh, the Duchess, the Duchess, she'll be savage I've kept her. Damn, rabbits must align. And though I doubt more than a handful have noticed, a few among the tour wrinkle their noses and frown. If the boss finds out, she'll be livid. I can't manage another inquisition. Underneath rabbit's layers of makeup and dye, he's a little ruffled around the ears. The edges of his coat are tattered, and as he scurries past, dropping his fan and gloves, he smells strongly of whiskey. During today's lunch, he told me he's down to three flasks a day from upwards of seven, lauding himself as if this were a great progress. But I thought, what happens after zero? Beyond lurks only a great void, like Wonderland's starless sky, and when Rabbit wasn't looking, I took a deep draft from his flask. When he vanishes down the hall, salt water trickles in from under the door frames to pool around our ankles. My group giggles nervously at first, but when the water reaches waists, their faces turn sober. It's cold, they shout, smiles fading. By the time it reaches the children's shoulders, out swims Mouse, paddling furiously. Some shriek, Mouse is a mouse after all. And just like the story, a few wags try their French on him. And he feigns fright and darts off before returning. The kids, floating easily in the salt water, adore him. And though Mouse is masterful with an audience, I watch him closely. He's on parole for petty larceny, and though he's been nothing but kind to me all these years, I keep a tight hand on my wallet as he swims past. The water keeps rising, and by the time Duck and Dodo swirl by, you can see in the people's eyes they're thinking on the rumors again, the ones they've heard but didn't believe or conveniently forgot. But now they're worrying that maybe they should have read that map of warnings a little more carefully, and really, what had they gotten their families into? Hold on to me, parents shout, scaring their kids, and their sudden burst of tears feeds the pool for my next tour. As they shout and slosh and flail, the eaglet pauses before me. Without words, I slip him 50 quid under the rushing waters, and he slips me two grams of the finest psychedelic mushrooms Wonderland has to offer before swimming on. Few seem to know or remember that Mouse will soon dry them on the riverbank with a lecture about William the Conqueror because the parents are still panicking, the kids are still crying. With this, at least, the boss will be pleased.
Thanks. Our next reader is Genevieve Valentine. Valentine sorry. <clears throat> She's the author of Mechanique, The Girls at the King Fisher Club, Persona, and Icon. Her short fiction has appeared in over a dozen best of the years. And I'm sorry, it's like I haven't even drunk anything. <clears throat> Although I had to get up early. <clears throat> well, anyway, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not skipping it. <laughs> Her short fiction has appeared in over a dozen best of the year anthologies. In Commas, she has written Catwoman and, Bar and Batman and Robin Eternal for DC and Xena Warrior Princess for Dynamite. Her short work has appeared in Vertigo's Strange Sports Stories and Kudansha's Attack on Titan anthology. Her nonfiction reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The AV Club, NPR, and other venues. Please welcome Genevieve. <laughs> My first impression of Alice in Wonderland was that it was a horror story. Uh, my mom read it to me when I was about four years old. And as someone who was trying very much to figure out the logistics of adult interactions, Wonderland was a hellscape. Um, I'm not entirely sure that my opinion of the story has ever really changed. Uh, one of the things that strikes me the most on a reread is the wariness of both Alice and presumably the author about what it means to be a grown-up woman. Uh, and it's a wariness that I share, but for very different reasons. So this is from uh, A Comfort One Way. The kitchen is boiling hot, clouds of pepper everywhere, and her invitation to play croquet has just arrived. Her chin pains her, and an Alice will be here any second. Be what you would seem to be, that's the trick. She pushes at the bundle in her arms until it screams, and she waits for a girl who's done as she's told and brought some gloves and a fan to a rabbit who left her to die, a rabbit whose house she staved in because she couldn't curb her appetites. The Duchess's mouth tastes like salt, and her neck aches from the executioner. She doesn't blame any of the girls who visit Wonderland for what happens. You're either a queen or a duchess eventually, and it's not like anyone else can be the queen. She always tells when Alice's are coming, when their voices boom so loud it scares the bread and butterflies right off the branches. Alice's have appetites. Mary Ann's show up at the door a little sooner. They don't eat cakes and cordials that are just lying around. Mary Ann's skip the sea of tears and never wash ashore anywhere near the dodo. They show up prompt and get to work. They never get out. Alice's sob an ocean and stomp out the doors and throw the baby into the woods and shout at the queen until they break free. Mary Ann stay right where they are and fetch and carry for the rabbit. They don't think anything is particularly wrong. The Duchess watches them frown at the rabbit a bit at first, but it fades. He's flighty, what employer isn't. They all start out Alice, back in the world at the top of the tunnel, but something happens and she doesn't know what. There's no chance to understand it either. Alice's leave and Mary Ann's get so quiet. It's awful. You're thinking about something, dear, she warns every Alice, and that makes you forget to talk. There's no point in trying too hard to shake a girl loose from the branch. She's a Marianne or an Alice, and you'll know soon enough which. 
but still. Here, if a girl stops talking, the mice will do it instead. Rabbits will. The flowers will. If you ever stop talking, you'll never get a word in edgewise again. That's the moral of that. This Alice scowls. Her mouth pinches shut, more pointed than a chin. Duchess lets her go. As Alice passes by, the roses lean in with their mouths open. Whatever they're breathing on her, she won't last the night. The trick is that the Mad Hatter never wants you at the tea, so if you're looking for your pig to collect him from the woods and want to catch them unawares, you have to wait until Alice has just left. They'll all be distracted then. No one can resist an Alice. She can't always manage to sneak off for long enough. The kitchen requires her attention and the invitation to croquet is due and then she has to die. But sometimes she gets so lonely she could scream and even a Mad Hatter and a Marsh Hare are better than a nose full of pepper and a door that always has a little girl behind it. When she sits, the Hatter howls, Great galloping goodness! Who asked you? Nobody at all. Two sugars, she says, dumping the Dormouse out of the spare cup and banging it once on the table. You were much nicer before, the Mad Hatter says. Which is true if he means who she used to be before she was the Duchess. It's a lie if he means she was different just before the last time the axe came down. She was the same then. Not much point explaining, though. The Hatter's not very good about changes unless he's the one making them. The March Hare won't even look at her anymore. She killed him for the stew once just to see if it would make anything different for the next Alice through the door. It didn't. That girl turned out to be a Marianne, and that tea party went on for six weeks because she was too polite to run. But for someone who forgets so much, the rabbit's got an awful long memory about some things. If the Duchess stayed at the table, time couldn't touch her either. But someone's head has to be cut off to make room for the next, like pruning a rose bush ahead of the spring. Sooner or later, she has to grow older and older, until her face sags past her pointed chin, and the little girls that barge through the door freeze in their tracks, seeing someone so old with a baby so young. The tea party gets along without the Duchess. They pull the wings off the bread and butterflies and knock the vase of murdered flowers sideways so the Dormouse can imitate what it's like to drown. Move down, the Hatter shrieks from time to time. But she never does, and the rhythm of the party breaks when everyone edges past her as quick as they can. She's sure of it, though. If you move every time someone barks that you should, you end up horribly far from where you started. She has a chair that creaks under her and wobbles when she peers around, and that'll do her just fine from now until the last Alice. Hatter claims the view is finer here, or the chair is softer there, but what she has is well enough suited. No point being curiouser. It's a horrid party, but it's something, and she stays until eventually the edges of the garden start to smear. Time is getting on without her, too. Best go, old girl, says the Hatter quietly. Time and tide are waiting. She doesn't mind, usually. She's clung to the table once or twice until the cards had to come and get her, but most of the time she mutters her goodbyes and gets on with it. The tea's made of salt water anyway. Nasty stuff. Alice would hate it if the Hatter ever let them drink. Marianne is waiting in the kitchen when the Duchess comes home to change for croquet. Marianne eases her into her five skirts and her fine jacket and the collar that stretches tight around her sagged face and her violent chin. Though she wouldn't know why if you asked her, Marianne's fingers tremble as she fastens the collar buttons. Alice's storm through so much they never need consider. Marianne's have the time to fetch gloves and listen to the stillness of the nighttime here and see what will become of them all. Thank you. So that's a bit of a taste of each story. Of oh, I forgot. Here's the flamingo again. It just popped back. Hi there. It's me. I think. Oh, so I won't burn them. Let's burn them. No. 
So anyway, thank you for coming. Hang out, drink if you like, buy some more books. You know, just talk to us. And, and uh, thank you again. And hopefully I'll see some of you on Wednesday for the regular KGB reading. So thanks. Okay. And thank you for coming.